0: from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Monday, October 30th. David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Radio Hour, is with us after the October 7th attack, he personally went to Israel and has just published a masterful piece of reporting that is rich in history, respects the experiences of both Israelis and Palestinians, if I may say, and includes political analysis that goes beyond trying to lay blame and express rage. It's worthy of what we know David Remnick to be in his position as editor of The New Yorker, and it's good if you have time on your hands, too, because it displays at 47 pages. David, we always appreciate when you come on the show. Sometimes it's to have some fun. I always enjoy those. But in this case, I just want to start by thanking you for your deep take that even includes some rays of hope. Welcome back to WNYC.
1: Uh, it's, it's always good to talk with you, Brian. Thank you so much.
0: And we'll save that ray of hope for the end with one soundbite from the Radio Hour version. But, David, why did you decide to personally run toward the fire, as it were, after the Hamas invasion of October 7th. As editor-in-chief, it doesn't have to be you.
1: Well, I've been covering this part of the world uh, for a very, very long time. And we also had other people writing about this, I should say. Um, Ruth Margolit in Israel. Um, We've had a a young poet inside Gaza has written uh, a couple of dispatches. From us, for uh, from us, Mossab Abu Toa, um, and Isaac Chotner has done any number of interviews. It's just um, I do know my way around there a little bit, and uh, have written many pieces from there over the years, from Gaza, from the West Bank, as well as from Israel. Um, and I felt compelled to do it, and but I'm back, and others will write more.
0: You titled your article in the cities of killing cities plural a reference to a landmark Hebrew poem from around 1904 after a devastating Russian pogrom could you tell that story sure. a little bit even many jews don't know it the kishinev pogrom and the poem that came as a response
1: yeah in in 1903 in the se- in the pale of settlement where jews were made to live in in the russian empire it was one of many uh Pogroms, uh, famously in 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 Kishinev, 1903, and the alleged compulsion for this horrible act was that there was an accusation that Jews had killed a young Christian child to use the blood for the making of Passover matzah, and led by uh, priests, people beset on the Jewish population, and this this pogrom. Um, Helped. In, it, 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 was a, it was a pivotal moment in, in, in history. Uh, it's important to. It's interesting to recall that forty-nine Jews were killed. Forty-nine. Um, what happened in Israel on the seventh was fourteen hundred. So you can be sure this 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 event, and we'll talk about the wider event as well. But this that this event will have enormous meaning uh, for I think decades and decades to come for all kinds of reasons. And a, a poet named Bialik um, wrote a poem called In the City of Killing about Kishinev. He'd been sent there to write an oral history. And that poem about um, the massacre is read by almost all school kids in, um, uh, in Israel. And it remains one of the pivotal modern poems in, 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 in the history of the modern Hebrew language.
0: And so your title, In the Cities, Plural Cities, of Killing, were you trying to make an analogy that you can explain?
1: Well, I think it's a resonant title, and I I think um, the killing has been in any number of communities um, in Israel proper, um, in various kibbutzim, um, at a music festival known as Nova, and now we're seeing the devastating bombing and, and now land incursion into Gaza, where so many innocent people are being killed uh, for reasons that we know, because these Israelis are uh, in a state of grieving, mourning, shock, and the need to do what countries do, which, to, which is to lash out. And I think there's, there, there needs to be a. Um, very serious discussion right on, right away at every level of the wisdom of this, the humanity of this, the intention of this, and the repercussions of this. Um, I totally understand, um, and more importantly, many 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 Israelis totally understand uh, the contradiction here between security and and what will be achieved by this incursion into into gaza it is a is a terrible terrible problem um, it's, it's we, we could go on about it for hours and hours uh, but the peace tries to achieve and and i begin by saying i know that i'll fail is to is to is to illuminate those contradictions and the and that history and the various narratives that are constantly at odds with each other, all of it moving at the speed of social media. Yeah. Uh, Everybody. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Well, I was going to say, I want to come back uh, near the end of our conversation to your lead sentence and saying, you know, you will fail in your attempt to report truthfully and David, I did read all 47 pages of your article yesterday. It, it's
1: not 47 <laughs> pages. Well, it's, it's, in, in the print magazine, it's it's, it's more like 12. Uh, it's okay. it's 10,000 words long. It's, it's, right. it's Well, that's how it displayed
0: on my computer if one were to print it. But yeah. a tragic irony that you yeah. seem to shed light on is how Netanyahu and Hamas each seem to empower each other's rejection of a two-state solution, contributing to today's awful results for both peoples. On the Hamas side, for example, you cite the period right after Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005 when the Gaza leadership could have used the international support they were promised to develop their economy, one of your sources says, and Israel might have then further pulled back. But instead, Hamas launched thousands of missiles back into Israel in the next two years and the pattern was set. Do you get any sense from your reporting that many Gazans or most Gazans think Hamas made the wrong choice for the popular good?
1: I should, I should say first of all, that I have not been in Gaza for some years and certainly not on this trip. That would have been um, impossibly dangerous and, and impossible to do. I, there's this extraordinary reporting coming from any number of uh, Gazans, Palestinian stringers for place for various newspapers and, and so on. And I, I can't commend them enough. Um, history, the telling of history depends on when you start to tell it. But and so, you know, that that's where the arguments begin, but never end. But yes, uh, Israel under Ariel Sharon withdrew from from Gaza, uprooted the settlements there. And um, the hope was that Gaza, with help from abroad, uh, would develop. Um, it didn't. And in fact, in 2006, um, Hamas, um, which is opposed and has always been opposed to, uh, 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 a state, uh, maybe they might want it for a, what's called a hudna, or, or kind of truce. But in the end, it, it is, it is wants to get rid of what they call the Zionist entity. Uh, it won an election in Gaza. And when the Palestinian um, the, the, the nationalist faction, the PLO, what we now call the Palestinian Authority, it's very complicated, but there was a clash between Hamas, and the PLO, and Hamas, using extremely violent um, tactics, including throwing people off of buildings, prevailed and has been in power ever since, and there have been no elections ever since. Israel, um, uh, pointing to the missiles that have been fired to it, has imposed with differing strength at differing times, uh, a a siege or a a blockade. And this has been a complicated history of back and forth for for many years. And anybody who's, you know, 25 years old has lived through um, any number of periods of uh, rocket fire and then airstrikes into Gaza. It's just that the, the magnitude of it now is is just so much larger by an order of magnitude.
0: Yeah. And on the Israeli side, you describe in your article a strategy of Netanyahu's known as the conception, which Correct. The, the conception, can, and
1: I'll make to go be ahead. short about it, the conception was to empower Hamas so that it would <laughs> it would make the Palestinian Authority weaker. And the Palestinian Authority would have been the way toward establishing a a Palestinian state. It's a very complicated story. I'm not giving you a nuanced uh, explanation at all, and I know the arguments will come at me in, in callers if we plan that, but uh, that's the shape of it, and it's been... Um, it was a terrible miscalculation, obviously.
0: Netanyahu, if this is a, a decent, very short-form description... Managed to marginalize talk of a stu- two state solution rather than his plan to annex the West Bank without full citizenship for the Palestinians who live there by weakening the Palestinian Authority, which was the institution that Israel could have more easily worked with for a two state peace. That's and right. I guess my question is um, similar to what I asked you about your impression of Gazans over the years, did did many Israelis actually think that would satisfy Palestinians' longer-term um, goals rather than lead to more generations of uprisings against occupation?
1: Well, I think they were, day to day, glad not to have to think about it very much. Uh, I, I don't say that in a critical sense. I say it just as, as a, in a descriptive sense. That, and as a result, all the concentration was on domestic politics, like the judicial reform debate, The Israeli leadership has been much more right-wing in the last uh, couple of decades, um, for the most part. Um, And foreign affairs were concentrating on making peace with and normalizing relations with the Sunni Arab states, the UAE, and most importantly, Saudi Arabia, Um, you know, the Abraham Accords. And this was on the brink of happening before October 7th. Um, that's that's now completely uh, in tatters, at least for the time being.
0: My guest is David Remnick for another few minutes, uh, editor-in-chief of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. Most of the Radio Hour this past weekend um, was about his trip to Israel after October 7th, and he's got a long article in The New Yorker. We can argue over whether it's 12 pages or 47 pages. People <laughs> will argue over anything, so we could argue exactly, over that. Exactly. Um, but, David, I want to start our last few minutes together by quoting the very first line of your article, which you referred to a few minutes ago. Before you get into all the content, you say the only way to tell this story is to try to tell it truthfully and know that you will fail. And I think that we are trying to do a similar thing. I wrote in our newsletter last week, if I may quote my own article, I wrote, we try to strike a good faith balance on the show of hearing the grievances and aspirations of both sides without falling into both sides-ism, a shallow false equivalency that's too common in news coverage. Striking that balance is hard, and I'm sure we fall short. Those are my yeah. words. So I was struck when I read your opening sentence about trying to tell it truthfully and knowing that you will fail, how do you at least strive for that truthful ideal?
1: I think you have to, first of all, you have to write the second line. In other words, you can't throw up your hands and give up. And if a journalist is doing anything, they are trying their damnness to bear some witness, to try to understand their own biases and um, limitations what they're seeing what they're not seeing Um, and then and then at the same time do your damnedest Um, a a, a kind of journalism of futility where you don't get to the second sentence i think does nobody any good so i did my best and and but i know that it comes up short and i also know this the two foreign stories that i've covered in my life which in, in some sense went from optimism to, to something completely at the other end of the spectrum, which is to say Russia and the Israel-Palestinian question, Israel-Palestine. Um, I could write about Russia, and a very few people follow this very carefully. And they people usually are sort of um, kind of grateful for what you write, and they learn something, and they say so, and they're you know, there obviously are critics. But on this question, people have intense feelings, uh, intense political attachments. They know some things. They don't know some things. They But one thing for sure is they have powerful uh, opinions about it. And if you've ever you know, done any public speaking and somebody gets up to ask the first question and says, I have a, I have three questions in four parts in a public statement. Um, That's, that's, that's the way it goes.
0: You should see my inbox. Um, I can imagine. But, and to that point, David, I also wrote in the newsletter, and I haven't said it yet on the show in these words, that some on one side will say nothing is the equivalent of a sudden murderous terrorist attack on thousands of civilians some on the other side will say nothing is the equivalent of a long, brutal occupation that has killed so many over time. And maybe they are both right in their own ways. But maybe we can have conversations that go beyond which side is worse. And, and I think that's what you're trying to do in your article. But do you ever feel that that's where the political conversation about all this maybe especially uh, I think, it, gets stuck it, think, on the question yeah. which side is worse?
1: yeah I, I I think what's I think it's probably in the end impossible at any given moment to reach any everybody impossible and when I hear people five seconds after a massacre of 1400 people a, a gleeful one a, a, with butchery and and just unspeakable acts not even gesture toward um, uh, sorrow empathy. Yeah. Sorrow, empathy, call it what you will, and rush immediately towards some abstract framework of uh, whatever it might be. I, I, I'm not going to reach that reader. And um, and I'm not going to reach readers who have no empathy at all for innocence being killed on the other side of the wall either. I, But I, I have to think. Otherwise, we would despair. I have to think the vast majority of people are tortured one way or another, are trying to f- sort this out, are trying to come to some sort of resolution. Um, but I, I, on, the, on, those, on those extremes um, of hard-heartedness, I, I, I don't think I can reach anybody. I don't think we can at all.
0: So here's that ray of hope for peace and a long-term resolution of the conflict that I mentioned at the top that we would end with from your article, really from your New Yorker Radio Hour, um, from both. The New Yorker Radio Hour piece holds it out in audio. The print version in the magazine obviously holds it out in print. But this clip is from your interview with the scholar, significant figure in Palestinian public life, and former advisor to Yasser Arafat, Sari Nuseba, this is one minute long from this weekend's New Yorker radio hour.
2: But look, I mean, people get very angry. I can understand the Israelis and the Palestinians now today wanting vengeance and wanting to um, you know, regain the image they have of themselves and wanting their rights and all of that. But I think both peoples know deep down that it doesn't lead anywhere to continue shooting at each other and that there must come a point when they have to uh, come to terms with another, one another and to find some kind of form of coexistence between them. So although the Israeli really, uh, population is, is has sort of been pushed to the right and on the Palestinian side have been pushed towards Hamas, uh, nonetheless, I think this is a temporary thing. And I think that you know the day will come soon when it will be possible again to uh, build for peace. And it can be done with sufficient also help and intervention by the international community.
0: Sorry, Nuseba from the New Yorker Radio Hour this weekend. And David, he made me think, you know, some long civil wars, really long civil wars and international uh, wars too, have reached that point where the people on both sides are just so exhausted that they throw up their hands. One could argue that Europe, after centuries of wars, Mm. most of Europe reached that point fairly recently, that exhaustion and disgust with war itself. So maybe that's a ray of hope, with the question being how long will that take? So do you have a final thought as we run out of time, maybe about your time with Sari Nuseba or anything else?
1: I thought Sari Nuseba, who's someone I've known for a long time, um, was very wise in that he said, we cannot afford... We cannot afford pessimism, just a kind of throwing up of the hands, a, a, a politics of despair. Because if you, if you give yourself over to that, you give pe- people have no hope. And that's where the hell comes in. And if you, if you do that, then all is lost. And none of us can afford that not Americans, not Palestinians, not Israelis, not anyone. And it's very hard.
0: mm -hmm. Well, it's very hard are probably good words to leave this on. As we run out of time, David Remnick's new article in The New Yorker based on his reporting in Israel since the 7th of October is called In the Cities of Killing. David, thanks for sharing some of this with us.